Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 12 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is on OPEC sanctions, screening, and compliance. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. In today's episode, I'm excited to introduce Jackie Merrill, Senior Associate at the Volkoff Law Group, with whom I work, obviously. Uh, Jackie is going to be speaking today about OFAC sanctions screening and sanctions compliance. Welcome to the podcast, Jackie. It's good to have you here. And if you can start just by introducing yourself a little bit, and then we'll go from there. Sure, Mike. Thanks for the warm welcome. Like Mike said, my name is Jackie Merrill Martin, and I'm a senior associate with the Volkov Law Group. Um, Much of my work over the years has involved consulting on anti-corruption and sanctions compliance. And I'm happy to be here to share some insight with other compliance professionals in the field. Well, great. Let's get started. And um, first, I guess the first question that everybody starts with is, how do I know if I need to be conducting OFAC screening? Well, Mike, it's interesting because a lot of people think that the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, sanctions as regulating foreign countries but they actually regulate U.S. persons. And of course, a U.S. person means more than just an individual like you and you or me. The term covers U.S. citizens and permanent residents, companies organized under the laws of the U.S., and any company operating in the U.S. So even if a company is registered elsewhere, it's subject to OFAC sanctions if it operates in the U.S. Additionally, non-U.S. branches of U.S. companies and foreign subsidiaries are subject to U.S. sanctions laws. Long story short, if your business activities take place in the U.S. or or you are a U.S. person and you do business with foreign entities, you need to be conducting OFAC screening. So, Jackie, are uh, OFAC sanctions the only ones I need to worry about as a U.S. company? That's a very good question, and the answer is it depends. Typical lawyer's response, I know. There are many sanctions regimes around the world, such as in the UN, EU, and UK. But in this podcast, we're focusing on OFAC screening. Depending on the location of the transaction, individuals, and your company's offices, other sanctions may apply. Okay, so how how do the OFAC sanctions lists work? Can you, like, can companies just focus on screening transactions related to certain countries and call it a day? No. So there are two general categories of OFAC sanctions. Although the broad-based sanction programs are oriented geographically, like Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and Syria, there are also targeted sanctions known as specially designated, designated nationals and blocked persons, and commonly referred to as the SDN list. The broad, on the, on the one hand, the broad-based prohibitions vary somewhat on a country-to-country basis, but the regulations generally prohibit United States persons from doing business with or in the targeted countries absent a license from OFAC. The targeted lists, on the other hand, are often focused on individuals or entities known to be involved in terrorism, weapon proliferation, narcotics trafficking, human rights violations, 
malicious cyber-enabled activities, among other bad things. Okay, so let's talk about the nuts and bolts of how you conduct screening, you know, for an OFAC-prohibited entity. What's, what's the first step? Well, the initial step is identifying the parties that need to be screened. This is a really critical step, and we sometimes see that it's something that clients overlook. Depending on your company's risk profile, you may need to screen more than just the traditionally defined customer or what you might think of as a third party. For example, freight forwarding companies that ship internationally may need to screen intermediary service providers as well as the ultimate customers or end users. The key in this step is to analyze the international touch points. If your subcontractor is located in South Korea and the ultimate customer is in Thailand, both should be screened. Companies with a large fluctuating client base in an international environment, such as banks or freight forwarders, present present high risk. If you're a U.S.-based company that does not have many foreign customers or other third parties, your risk profile is obviously going to be lower. Well, once we've identified which categories of third parties we need to screen, then what do we do next? So next, we need to ensure that we're getting the appropriate information from the third parties and customers we've identified. Beneficial ownership information is critical. Beneficial ownership refers to the natural persons that own or control the entity. We've seen before where we requested beneficial ownership, and in response, the parties send us this complex trust network. This is not sufficient. We need to know the names of the actual human beings. A lot of times our clients will obtain beneficial ownership information as part of a standard questionnaire that they give to parties. This questionnaire must be completed as a condition of the potential business relationship. Okay, so now we've figured out which third parties and customers to screen and obtained, let's say we've obtained the beneficial ownership information so we know who the actual persons are who own uh, the company. How do we actually screen them? Well, I personally recommend purchasing a third-party vendor screening database. Uh, That's what we use, a couple of those, and it makes life a lot easier and the process much more efficient. These databases, and there are a lot of them out there, will screen against the OFAC lists, among other sanctions lists and watch lists. So you would conduct searches for for the company name, including any parent companies, and each of the beneficial owners. However, if you don't have a vendor that automates this process for you, you can go to the OFAC website and search the SDN list. What complicates this a bit is if your third party or customer is covered under the broad-based sanctions, its name will not necessarily show up in the SDN list. In this case, you will need to dig a bit more into the specific details of the company to ensure that it is not based in one of the restricted countries. So if I think I have a match on you know, of an entity that I'm running and it shows up on the SDN list, um, what do I do next after that? Besides call so, you, I mean, I'll probably call you right away. Obviously. Okay. <laughs> and, right. and don't panic, obviously. So um, oftentimes a potential name match can be eliminated as a false positive, which you can think of as a false alarm. So based on circum and and you can eliminate them based on circumstances and surrounding information indicating that the results do not relate to the same person or entity as the third party candidate. But you'll need to conduct further investigation in order to make that determination. 
I'm going to go through a few categories that we use. And keep in mind as I go through these that a lot of times no individual discrepancy is going to be conclusive of it being a false positive. However, several discrepancies may corroborate a false positive. So uh, one note that's really important in this process, be sure to fully document all of this for your records, including things like taking screenshots of pertinent web pages while you're doing your research. Anyway, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. So an SDN entry will, will often have, for example, a full name, address, nationality, passport, tax ID number, place of birth, date of birth, former names, and aliases. And some will have more, some will have less of this information. So it's not going to surprise you to hear that the first place to look is at the basic identifying information. In an ideal world, you would be able to obtain a copy of the individual's identification, whether a passport or national identification card, just some kind of official documentation with a full name, picture, birth date, and nationality. We know that isn't always realistic, but you can use these focus areas to analyze a potential match. A logical starting point is the name. Compare how much of the name is matching. For example, first and last, or first, middle, and last and consider whether the name is a common one in that locale. Also consider naming convention that, conventions in that particular part of the world. In some countries, each and every word in the name is an important identifier. Also keep in mind, the names of individuals and entities sometimes translate poorly from other languages, especially um, some of the Asian and Middle Eastern languages into English, and that creates an increased likelihood of a false positive. The second area to look is at nationality. So you compare the nationality of the individual or entity that produced a potential match to determine whether it matches the nationality provided to you. Next area is birth date. You can compare the birth date of the individual that produced the potential match to determine whether it matches the approximate age of the candidate. And you will see sometimes in databases there's, there's an approximate birth date. So that's something to look for. Then there's photo identification. You can seek out sources with photographic documentation to compare the individuals. News reports often include a photo of the individual subject of the articles, and likewise, many companies will include photographs of principals on their websites. And uh, finally, another area to compare is contact information, such as address and telephone number. Although these often change, it's certainly one area to look at when you're trying to determine whether you have a match or not. You can compare those if they're provided to those affiliated with any potential matches. Well, that is all very helpful. And just to make your life a little bit more complicated, what if I go through all of those areas? I've noticed some discrepancies here and there, but I'm still not sure that it's a false positive. What do I, what do, I do then? Well, you're not totally out of options and you can review a number of other sources. For example, the third party or customer might have a website that provides other identifying information, such as full names of principals, names of affiliated companies, addresses, locations of operations, and industry. These categories may provide data that was not supplied on any questionnaire that you might have received, and those might aid in the exclusion of a potential match as a false positive. You can also conduct what we call a general web search, where you basically input the candidate's name into a web search platform, such as Google, with quotation marks around the name. 
If this search yields an excessive number of results, you can use search terms to narrow the results, such as corrupt, crime, politician, politics, government, state, SDN, uh, etc. You can also use the relevant inf available information regarding sorry, use the available information regarding the candidate and the adverse results to compare any overlapping jurisdiction or lack thereof. So in other words, you're looking at the relevant territory here. For example, the adverse result may be excluded based in part on the fact that it does not operate in or near the jurisdiction in which the adverse result originated. These search areas aren't exhaustive, but are just some methods of excluding potential false positives that we've used. If in your search you see a curious detail, make sure that you follow the lead to see if it aids in your determination. We've followed some weird and seemingly random clues that led us to confirmation of an SDN or of a false positive. One time I found a video on the website of a nonprofit that had the potential matches name in the caption. I was able to track down more information from that, which led to a confirmation that it was the same SDN. So let's say I want to work with a company and there's one blocked beneficial owner uh, who is one of many, you know, several owners. Does that mean I can't do business with that company? Not necessarily. It depends on their amount of ownership and your risk appetite. OFAC follows what is called the 50% rule. Entities owned 50% or more in the aggregate by one or more blocked persons are then blocked. For example, if blocked person Alex owns 25% of ABC Corporation and blocked person Sam owns another 25% of ABC Corporation, ABC Corporation is then considered to be blocked. Depending on the amount of ownership of the blocked person and his or her amount of control of the business, there are also other reputational risks to consider, obviously. There's some interesting lit litigation between OFAC and ExxonMobil going on right now that relates to the control and ownership issue, but we'll save that for another podcast. Well, I, and I'm going to hold you to that. Um, <laughs> anyways, Jackie, this has been uh, terrific. Uh, thank you for your time and insights. Uh, it's been very helpful, and uh, we're glad to have you on the podcast and hope to have you on more. Well, Mike, it was my pleasure. And if anyone has any further questions, feel free to reach out to me at j-m-e-r-r-i-l-l -L at volkovlaw.com. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkoflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.